to episode 68 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. It's been nearly two months at the time of recording since Hamas's October the 7th attack, in which it killed around 1,200 Israeli civilians. The retaliatory campaign that's been waged since then by the Israeli state against the Palestinian population, predominantly in Gaza, but also in the West Bank, has been nightmarish to behold from afar. The latest estimates suggest as many as 15,000 people have been killed. For those of us who believe in the cause of Palestinian liberation, the questions elicited are urgent and numerous, but most fundamentally, how do we make sense of what is happening and how can we act to stop it? In recent weeks there have been a lot of conversations at Pluto about how best to intervene and respond to what is happening in Gaza and the West Bank. While our solidarity must come in many forms, one thing we want to continue to do is to provide a platform for Palestinian voices and for those fighting for a free Palestine, especially in a climate of censorship. This month we're joined on the show by Garda Kami. Born in Jerusalem, her family fled Palestine in 1948 during the Nakba. She has lived for several decades in Great Britain, where she trained as a doctor of medicine at Bristol University. She established the first British-Palestinian medical charity in 1972 and was an associate fellow at the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Garda is also the author of the best-selling memoir In Search of Fatima and the new book One State, The Only Democratic Future for Palestine-Israel, which was published in 2023 by Pluto Press. I spoke to Garda Kami on Friday the 1st of December. Garda, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show and to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. Perhaps many of our listeners will be aware of who you are already, but for those listeners who maybe don't know you and don't know your work, could you introduce yourself very briefly and yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, okay. Um, I am a Palestinian. I was born in Jerusalem, but ended up in Britain for the obvious reason. It was the setting up of the State of Israel in Palestine that drove people like me out. And so I ended up in England, where I um, grew up, studied medicine, became a doctor of medicine, and then later became very active in Palestinian politics. And as a result of that, I went into academic life and also became a writer. So I've written quite a number of books on this issue, including a memoir, In Search of Fatima, which is relatively well known, I think. And most recently, the Pluto book, One State, The Only Democratic Future for Palestine-Israel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that book for listeners came out in April of this year and, of course, feels incredibly relevant now, incredibly important now. I mean, you've mentioned you're Palestinian and um, I believe you spent your early years in Jerusalem before 1948 and then you were sort of personally affected by the Nakba. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I mean, I was a child, but I do I do have some memories and they are not good memories. It was horrible being driven out, really. And of course, as a child, I didn't understand why. All I could think was that I was losing all the things that were familiar to me uh, for no reason that I could understand. With crowds of fellow Palestinians with exactly the same problem, um, going in different directions. In our case, we did end up in 
Damascus in Syria because my grandparents lived there. And we went there and waited until, quotes, it all died down, end quote. Um, of course, it never died down. And um, so we had to move on and ended up in England. And that's where I've been ever since. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people will probably be familiar with the Nakba and know that we commemorated the 75th anniversary of that event earlier this year. Could you put some of that history into a bit more context? Because obviously it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, could you say a little bit about some of the events that led up to that moment of rupture and expulsion for so many hundreds of thousands of people? Yes. I mean, for people who might be interested, I have an earlier book, uh, also published by Pluto, called Married to Another Man, Israel's Dilemma in Palestine. Uh, that book goes into the historical context. But let me just say briefly, if I can, um, what happened was that Palestine was an Arab country. People absolutely have to grasp that fact. Until 1948, Palestine was an Arab country. It had minorities, amongst whom were a percentage of Jews, mostly native to Palestine, what we used to call Arab Jews, um, and others, Circassians, Armenians, etc. But in reality, it was predominantly Arab. Now, into this land of Arabs, there came a political movement called Zionism. Zionism was a European movement. That's the other thing to grasp, that here we have an Arab country, and then on the other hand, we have a European political movement which decided that the only solution for Jewish persecution in Europe, I might add, was to create a state for Jews in Palestine. And the reason Palestine was chosen was because of the biblical association in most people's mind, that this was a land which once upon a time was inhabited by Israelites, and at the time of Jesus, people were Jews. And so the idea was created by Zionists that all that you were seeing in modern days was the, quote, return of Jews, wherever they might have been, to their ancestral homeland. Now, the problem with that is that the ancestral homeland, so-called, was full of other people. That's the other man in the title, married to another man. Uh, it was full of people, but predominantly not Jewish, predominantly Palestinian and predominantly Muslim. That reality didn't stop the Zionists. With the aid of Britain, whose role in this terrible enterprise must never be forgotten, with the aid of Britain, this movement established itself in Palestine, in my homeland, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, which then led to a sort of scramble to get into Palestine, for Jews to get into Palestine uh, with the rise of Nazism. And so poor Palestinians were victims to two sets of circumstances. First, that a European political movement had made a decision that their country was going to become the country of the Jews. But secondly, the arrival of Nazism in Germany meant that uh, Jews were being expelled and were being displaced. And so the two events, the Zionists preparing Palestine to receive Jews and Jews fleeing from Europe, all came together 
and created the state of Israel. But in saying this, you see, there are various things when people really must remember. First, as I said, Zionism is a European political movement. Second, Palestine was a predominantly Arab country. But third, the idea grew up and was very compelling that because Jews were suffering elsewhere, their natural place of refuge was going to be Palestine. Now, this linkage is the one that has created the horrendous problem we have today. Nobody denies that Jews suffered, but they suffered in Europe. They suffered elsewhere. And Palestinians, the predominant, as I say, Arab population of Palestine, had nothing to do with any of that. Yet, their country, Palestine, was made to be the refuge for these displaced Jews. And, of course, it was then presented to the world as a, quote, moral enterprise. The moral enterprise being that here you have fleeing population who need a refuge. Here is the refuge, Palestine. And how, therefore, could one in all conscience say, no, no, you can't come here? Uh, Quite clearly, these people needed a refuge. Uh, If you ask me, the refuge should have been somewhere else in Europe, not in the Middle East, not in my country. So that is the fundamental position of all Palestinians. Be assured, uh, no matter what you hear, what you've read about so-called two-state solution, coming to terms, etc., the fundamental view of Palestinians remains that a great injustice was done to them because their country was used as the receptacle of persecuted Jews and without their permission and without their participation or cooperation. And that's not fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, in the process, what are the estimates between seven and 750,000 people were displaced? And, you know, you look at the situation in Gaza today. I mean, most people in Gaza are internally displaced, you know, refugees of one form or another. So, um, Yes, but of course, inevitably, an enterprise like that, in which you bring in a people from outside to take the place of the people already living there, obviously led to expulsion of the indigenous people. And it also led to the land not being effectively, quote, emptied by the Zionists in 1948, with the result that Palestinians remained in what we call the West Bank and Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and these are so-called occupied territories. But they are actually full of the the original native population whom the Zionists didn't manage to expel fully. And hence you have the problem today. It's really very important to really appreciate that the problem that I have just been speaking about 75 years ago led directly to what we're seeing today in Gaza. These are linked in a historical chain, and they're logical. There's nothing new or strange about what's been happening in Gaza. Mm, Absolutely. I mean, if I may quote from your book, I think there's a quotation from Benny Morris, which originally appeared in Haaretz, the newspaper, in which Benny writes, if the end of the story turns out to be a gloomy one for the Jews, it will be because Ben-Gurion did not complete the transfer in 1948 because he left a large and volatile demographic reserve in the West Bank and Gaza and within Israel itself. 
In other circumstances, apocalyptic ones, which are liable to be realised in five or ten years, I can see expulsions. If we find ourselves in a situation of warfare, acts of expulsion will be entirely reasonable. They may even be essential. If the threat to Israel is existential, expulsion will be justified. Now, obviously, you wrote the book, and, and this quotation within the book predates the events uh, that have taken place since October 7th. But revisiting this text now, does it ring true for you? I mean, are we witnessing an intended expulsion, a, a sort of a, a new iteration of the Nakba uh, under the auspices of the current war? And I you know, use that in scare quotes. Yes. You see, the other aspect of Zionism, which also I draw people's attention to, is the fact that it started off as an ideology which regarded the whole of Palestine as being the homeland of the Jews. And from the very start, aimed to expel the native population and take their place. Now, the fact that they didn't complete the job, as Benny Morris says, in 1948, doesn't mean that the, the original Zionist idea ever went away. And that is the problem. Zionists never evolved. Zionism never changed its fundamental trajectory. What it wanted was the whole of the territory without its inhabitants, so that the whole of the territory would become Jewish and the Palestinians had to go elsewhere. So that is the ideology. It's never changed. Now, the latest, the October 7th Hamas operation, I don't know at what point, but quite soon, presented itself as an opportunity to the Zionist leadership, which is the Israeli government, um, thinking now this is the moment when we can actually get rid of the people of Gaza, and you might say where, well, obviously onto Egypt, and at the same time, and look at the agitation, the killing and the violence that's taking place on the West Bank, that is not coincidental. It's also aimed at the same end result. That is, if they can empty the West Bank towards Jordan, then the job would have been completed. And that, I think, is what we're witnessing today. Mm, yeah, it's interesting to see the um, stated goals, I suppose, from Netanyahu's office. I mean, you have the eradication of Hamas, the recovery of hostages, of course, but uh, I think also it's written the goal of ensuring that Gaza never again constitutes a threat to the residents of Israel. And you can see how that objective ties in very much with the, the logic of Zionism. I mean, talking then about, well, a two-state solution, you, you still hear it rhetorically coming from all sides, you know, from media coverage, from political figures abroad. It still seems to be something that people are working towards or believe is feasible, but it's felt like a pretense for a very long time. Politically and logistically, it's unviable and it's incompatible with Zionism as well. Do you think there is a possible two-state solution? You know, what would be the prerequisite for any viable Palestinian state that's separate from Israel? What would Israel have to concede in order for that to be a possibility? Well, the, the two-state solution is, frankly, a non-starter. And it's a non-starter for very good reasons. The first of those is logistical. Even if one agreed with the principle, the idea of two states, where would the Palestinian state be? And I really very much hold the view that the people who promote this solution of two states really, really have to come up with a way in which they can demonstrate that all the settlements that are currently in the West Bank 
and make a viable Palestinian state impossible, that all those settlements should be removed. They have to come up with an assurance or a policy which says that those settlements will be removed and then, uh, you know, releasing territory for the future Palestinian state. Well, nobody has been able to do that. Nobody has been able to persuade successive Israeli governments to accept the two-state solution. They don't accept it. So on logistical grounds, meaning that the territory is not available for a Palestinian state, secondly, that the Israeli government doesn't want to make it available anyway, on those grounds. But then on the other hand, there are the grounds of, is this equitable? Is it fair? Supposing, let us suppose, that the settlements are all removed and there is this yielding this territory. Well, the two-state solution is usually understood by people, misunderstood by people, to mean that dividing the land between the two sides. Nothing is further from the truth. The reality is what the two-state solution is saying is that four-fifths of the original Palestine remain with Israel, and one-fifth, which is currently the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, um, goes to the Palestinians. That's only 20-22% of the original Palestine. Well, uh, here comes the second admission of people who promote this solution. If they want to promote this solution, not only do they have to demonstrate, as we've just said, that they are willing and able to empty the West Bank of the settlements, but they also have to say out loud that the 20% of the territory that would go to form the Palestinian state will not be able to accommodate all the Palestinians displaced by Israel's creation. Have to say it, meaning, therefore, you have five to six million refugees in UN camps currently, Palestinian refugees still living in UN camps today. Add to that several million Palestinians like me who are living in exile. Now, we all need to have our right recognized to return to our homeland. So if you want a two-state solution of the type that's being advocated, 20% is not going to be able to house all of us. So you've either got to come out and say openly, sorry, we can accommodate the ones who are already living there, the Palestinians already living there, but the rest of you, tough. Either you come out and say that openly, or you withdraw this idea of a two-state solution. And therefore, logically, a one-state solution, a democratic single state, as opposed to the de facto apartheid one state, which we have now, is surely the way forward. And I'd like to touch on that a little bit more, uh, perhaps a little later on in the conversation. I mean, it would be good to speak a little bit about what is happening now. Well, we're recording this episode on Friday the 1st of December, which means that uh, the seven-day ceasefire or, you know, pause in uh, fighting has ended. And I believe this morning, you know, there were reports of dozens more people killed in renewed aerial bombardment. I'm just wondering, how do you imagine the situation on the ground is, is going to develop over the coming days? And could you give us a little bit of insight into what the people of Gaza are facing? You know, what are the conditions like? Well, first of all, I wish I knew how the situation was going to develop. What I do know is what Israel would like to see, which is not quite the same thing. 
what Israel would like to see and what it's working towards is the expulsion of the Palestinians in Gaza onto Egypt. And how are they doing this? Now, Egypt has made it quite clear it will not accept that. So what are the Israelis doing? They are pushing people from the north of Gaza to the south and currently confining them to uh, Rafah, precisely, which is where the border with Egypt is. And the Israeli idea is that if you've got uh, two million Palestinians in dire straits, just literally the other side of Egypt's border, the idea in the mind of Israel is that the pressure of the sheer humanitarian pressure of that fact will force the Egyptians to open the border. That's that's the Israeli plan. Now, meanwhile, the situation of Palestinians in Gaza is catastrophic. I mean, we've run out of words to describe how atrocious, how appalling this situation is. It's the result of the unleashing of savage forces without any inhibition. What would you expect if you unleash a brutal army onto uh, unarmed civilians and give them carte blanche, kill as many as you want, destroy what you like, etc.? This is the result. So however much I might uh, use strong words, or, or the reality is even worse. And let me add, this reality is not hidden It's in plain sight. People could see it on their television screens. It astonishes me, by the way, that something so savage should, first of all, be allowed to happen. And secondly, that the perpetrator, that is the state of Israel, is supported. It's actually supported. It's armed. And one thing we need to be very clear on, the poor people of Palestine are not just having to suffer the violence of Israel. They are suffering the violence of the United States and Israel. Well, how on earth can that happen? How can the world's one superpower be so close to Israel that it arms, funds it, um, encourages it to do all this killing? What is that about? Isn't this a question actually for humanity, not a question for Palestinians? It's a question for everybody. What is this we're witnessing? Absolutely. I mean, it was so depressing, I suppose, during November to see so many of the political figures in Britain were even calling for a ceasefire was politically beyond the pale. It was too politically contentious and the talk was of a a humanitarian pause. You know, that prevailed instead. You know, and it caused a crisis within the Labour Party because Keir Starmer had, you know, a number of people resign. You know, he wouldn't call for the ceasefire. And at the same time, you had the debate, I suppose, around whether the pro-Palestinian marches, the marches for a ceasefire, should be permitted to continue on Armistice Day. You know, a a march calling for the end of destruction and, and bloodshed, whether that should be permitted to happen on a day that's supposed to mark the end of war. And you had all of these people, you know, festooning themselves in red poppies as they do every year saying that these were hate marches and that it would be inappropriate somehow. And, you know, that's where the discourse is at amongst the political elite in this country. Do you get a sense 
that popular feeling is uh, on a different wavelength, perhaps, to where the political establishment's at? Yeah. You know, one of the, um, the sources of comfort, if you like, for Palestinians has been the strength of popular support for them, not just in Britain, but um, in Europe, in the United States, all over the world. That has been, first of all, it's unprecedented in my lifetime to see this level and the extent of support for, for Palestine by ordinary people. Uh, that's been very heartening. But at the same time, as you point out, what is so interesting is that the political elite could have taken the path of saying, uh, no matter what this is about, this killing has to stop. And therefore, we are calling for a ceasefire, number one, number one. And number two, open the blockade. Let life-saving sustenance basic supplies in. That should have been the demand, immediate, as an emergency measure, no quibbles, no argument. That should have been the case. But... What's so striking about this is that rather than take that position, the choice has been to not call for a ceasefire, but at the same time suppress the voices calling for a ceasefire and the voices of Palestinians themselves or people sympathetic to them, that that is the course of action that the political leaders in Europe have decided that is their chosen course. I can't explain that. I, I find it uh, so almost obscene to actually condemn and oppress the people who suffer so much because of Israel uh, in order to save Israel an indignity or offense or something. Well, what is that about? And one of the things I've been hoping for as a result of the October the 7th operation and what has happened since, is that political thinkers and political leaders should have been pushed into actually asking themselves about Israel. What is this state that we, I mean they, have supported in the Middle East? Is it something that is a good idea? If at any time these political leaders thought it was a good idea, is it still a good idea? How about a reckoning? How about those questions that have to be asked? It's that fundamental because, you know, supposing... Uh, the dust settles, you know, in, in the hackneyed phrase, in some way or other. It will not be for long because the fundamental issue has not been looked at. And the fundamental issue, in my view, is that the state of Israel itself has to be analysed and has to be faced as to what the West created actually in the Middle East. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how two-state solution discourse still prevails and conversations around a peace process continue to prevail. But calling for a peace process is to sort of misapprehend what we're dealing with here. It isn't a conflict, as it's often presented, between two sides that have opposing interests. It's a settler colonial project. And uh, that's too rarely, I think, part of the conversation and part of the analysis that we sort of read in the media. So we touched on two-state solution, single democratic state earlier. Maybe let's come back to that now. If there is an alternative, 
to a two-state solution and if we agree that Israel is a settler colonial state and that's its treatment of the Palestinian population, then what would it mean to decolonize Israel? You know, what are the foundations? What would they have to be for any democratic state to emerge? And I accept that it would not be a smooth process by any means, you know, you, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. Well, of course, it won't be an easy thing to do. And the idea that the Israeli side would actually somehow see the light and, and think, oh, you know, we can't go on like this, is, is absolutely, forget it, it's so totally remote. Because, of course, the truth is uh, that Israel has all the privileges of a colonial state which uses the resources of the colonized people and pays nothing, no price whatever, for this colonization. Um, and it's very interesting that on October the 7th, it started to pay a small price for the sufferings it has imposed on the colonized people, and it went mad. We saw that. I'm not belittling Hamas, the operation, its effects, and, you know, we don't want to see violence and killings anywhere visited on anybody. But the point I'm trying to make is that even a small taste of that for Israel was absolutely intolerable. And it's on a vengeful project which says, you will pay, you being the Palestinian people. How dare you? How dare you come and do to us what we do to you? How dare you? So back to the issue. Um, so I think it's idle to imagine that the Israeli, neither the state, the government, nor the people, largely have any interest in what I'm talking about, which is a shared a shared space. But, you know, the way I like to present this to people is almost as a question. Let's look at the facts on the ground, okay, and ask ourselves, what is the way forward with something like this? Because what we have is a territory between the river and the sea. That territory is currently occupied by two sets of people. Uh, one set are Jewish Israelis, and the other set are Palestinian Arabs. But this whole territory is ruled and governed by the government of the state of Israel. That is the government of the state that involves half the population. The latest statistics that I have is that in the area between the river and the sea, there are 7.5 million Palestinian Arabs and 7 million Jewish Israelis. So it's roughly half and half, but with slight preponderance towards the Palestinians. So this is the situation on the ground. And what you have is that it is governed by one government only. And that government governs this area through a system of apartheid and violence towards one half of that population, the Palestinian Arab population. And as we see currently in Gaza, uh, exercises its imagined right to do whatever it likes to the occupied people. Well, if you've got a, a situation like that, even on common sense grounds, you would have to admit that that is not a stable arrangement. Much as the Israelis would like it to continue, it's not stable. It will break down. And you can see it's broken down already. And therefore, that is a dead end. That's a dead end. If you continue just smiting and bashing and killing if the Palestinians raise their heads, it will only um, postpone the inevitable for another day. 
So the proposition I've put is that why don't we think of something else, another model, that you have these two people living in this space. They cannot eradicate each other. They are not able to get rid of each other, much as is current Israeli government is trying to do. It can't. Therefore, what's the best way forward? Well, it would strike, I think, anybody with a grain of common sense and humanity and conscience that the really only way is if the two live together in a situation of equal rights, where we don't have distinctions on the basis of ethnicity or religion or any of that. We don't have uh, supremacy of one group over the other. We have a situation in which these two populations live together in the same space as they are doing now, but not in the way they're doing now, in a different way, where we create a democratic structure in place of the current apartheid regime that is ruling that area, and uh, hope with any, with any luck that that will be the future for these two peoples. Although, you know, I'm the first to admit we're not talking about anything easy, but we are talking about something that forms a good and reasonable endpoint to this hideous conflict. You know, I've said in my book, and I say again, the fact that something is difficult to do doesn't make it any the less the right thing to do. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's worth reiterating that overcoming the sort of apparatus of apartheid is a necessary step, but it's obviously not the final step. You have to overcome the ideology of Zionism itself somehow, because as you say, if people are going to live together, that ideology can't be present. It would be good, I think, to talk a little bit more about language, because I think you used the phrase, you know, between the river and the sea a minute ago. I mean, the phrase from the river to the sea, I think, has come under a lot of attack here in Britain and perhaps internationally as well. Um, the suggestion has been that this constitutes a sort of hate speech, that it's inherently anti-Semitic and even, you know, genocidal in sentiment. But of course, calling for a free Palestine doesn't imply any of these things, even if it threatens the Zionist project. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit about some of this, yeah, discursive tussle over phrases like from the river to the sea. I mean, is this new or is this just the latest example of the Zionist project's attempts to reframe and kind of delegitimize opposition, I suppose? Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, from the very beginning, the Zionists were very keen on winning the propaganda battle, and which they have done, I must say, very successfully. Uh, but we need to remember that right from the beginning, they always had to make a presentation of the Israeli project as something other than what it really was. So in the beginning, they framed it, and they were masters at framing something and imposing it through propaganda on the world. So people started to talk within the same framework. So the, the early, I mean, I give a very simple example, which is from the beginning, the project to establish an alien population in place of the indigenous people of a particular small land in the heart of the Middle East, the heart of the Arab world, this project, which on the face of it is outrageous, so what did they do? They started talking about the Old Testament, the Bible, people coming home, stressing this kind of link, which does not exist, of course, 
between the ancient Israelites and the modern Lithuanian Jews or Polish Jews or whatever. They had to do that in order to create in the popular mind, and remember the popular mind for them was the Western mind. This was the colonial world that they operated within, and they wanted to have backing from these colonial states, but which most of whom, uh, whose populations are Christian. So the idea of the Bible, the Old Testament is not alien, it's familiar, uh, Sunday school, you name it. And so people were familiar with the idea of the ancient Jewish prophets, etc., etc. So they used that to the hilt, and they did it very successfully. So that was the very obvious example of framing. And they've done that ever since. Whenever there's every new twist or turn in the conflict, they produce a new framing. The latest framing, of course, is anti-Semitism. So that if you criticize Israel, if you say anything about Israeli actions anywhere, you are anti-Semitic. Very successful, again, highly successful. And hence, one has to understand slogans like from the river to the sea is part of that. It's actually part of that. So that if you say Palestine will be free, which is the end of that ditty, um, is, is really a perfect statement of an aspiration that we would like to see uh, Palestine, however you define it, it's not prescriptive. It doesn't say in what territory, but it says Palestine, a place where Palestinians live, will be free. Of course they must live in freedom. Of course, it's self-evident. However, if you let the propagandists on the other side get their hands on this, what they end up with is that this slogan actually can translate to mean when you say Palestine and between the river and the sea, there is also a state of Israel, and therefore what you're really meaning is there will be no more Israel, you know. So that's how it works. Therefore, you can see from that, once you've got people to accept your framing, then the rest follows. Honestly, it's not hard. What they have to do is always to question the framing. So when the whole anti-Semitism storm uh, erupted in 2015, 2016, it's quite recent actually, that should have been questioned from the beginning. Nobody should have accepted that because it was obvious what they were trying to do. They were trying to shift the meaning of Jew hatred onto Israel hatred. That's what they were trying to do. That should have been busted right at the beginning so they couldn't get away with it anymore. And you know, but there you are. It didn't happen. And here we are. Yeah. It's really very serious, this, because it affects the way people think. You know, these prohibitions on language affect and create prohibitions on thinking. And that is very, very serious. Uh, somehow, and I'm not, I don't know how, except by people repeating what I'm saying, which is that people have to always impose their version all the time and fight for it and say, we mean this, and that's what we're sticking to. And you can interpret whichever way you like. We don't care. Yeah, I mean, one more point about language, I think. It's been interesting how even sort of pretty mainstream, non-radical organizations, you know, like the UN and various NGOs and even heads of state have been using language in talking about what Israel is perpetrating in Gaza and the West Bank, it has to be said as well, using words like war crimes, 
breaking international law, ethnic cleansing, genocide even. You know, these are words which should never be used lightly, but they are being used to describe what's happening. And I think a lot of people will be shocked by that, probably. Could you give us a bit of context, I suppose, about why this language is being used appropriately and correctly to describe Israel's actions in Gaza? Because it's correct, because that is exactly what Israel is committing, these crimes. Israel is committing these crimes. One has to look at uh, the legal definitions of genocide, a legal definition of a war crime, and you will see that Israel's actions conform exactly to what the law says. But you see, if you like, it's evidence of how alarmed the Zionists are by, by this kind of overt use of language, saying we're going to call it what it is, a war crime, and we're going to call it what it is, collective punishment, and so on. Uh, you should see how alarmed they are because they've produced an opposite propaganda thing, which is the right to self-defense, in inverted commas. Now, you know that political leaders in the West parrot this stuff about Israel has the right to self. No, it doesn't. In international law, it absolutely does not have the right to self-defense when it is an occupying power. It is an occupying power in terms of Gaza. It is an occupying power in terms of the West Bank. Occupiers do not have the right to self-defense over the occupied people. That is not so. And therefore, that should have been refuted again right from the beginning. But as usual, the Israeli propaganda machine was allowed to impose this idea. And you hear it even from perfectly well-meaning ordinary people say, well, it's got a right to self-defense. Of course, it doesn't. You know, in fact, and this is not original to me, but in order to illustrate this point perfectly, it's the same as saying that Russia was exercising its right to self-defense when attacking Ukraine. That sort of brings it home, uh, the absurdity of this idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. That The comparison is very apposite. There's a lot more we could say, and, and, and my hope is certainly to produce more episodes of this podcast uh, in the future, looking at different aspects. We haven't, for instance, touched on some of the incredible solidarity action uh, that we're seeing from you know trade unionists blockading shipments of armaments to Israel. And you know I think Belgian trade unions in November announced that they would refuse to handle any armaments as well. So there's a huge degree of solidarity taking many forms. And maybe we can touch on that in the last couple of minutes. But um, I would, I suppose, invite you just by way of conclusion, we've mentioned already your, your book, One State, The Only Democratic Future for Palestine-Israel, that was published in April of this year. Is there any aspect of the book, or not from the book, um, that you'd like to reflect on before we conclude, or as we conclude, that feels particularly sort of relevant or just important to share in, in light of the last two months' events? Yeah, I really do hope people read this book uh, carefully. It's not very long. But what I've tried to do, and that is something that I would hope people will dwell on, is actually the framing of what's going on. It's actually the context is very important. And that is what I've gone through in the early chapters before we get on to talk about the one state uh, idea and what it means. Before that, preceding the chapters preceding that, which are about what Israel means to Jews, what Israel means to Western states, the previous history, the way the whole thing happened, 
is so crucially important in order to understand what is happening now. And, you know, I often say that um, I'm very often asked to speak about this business, this Israel-Palestine conflict, as an expression of settler colonialism or... Actually, it's very important, I think, to understand how unique this conflict is. It's really unique because it combines features present in no other settler colonial enterprise. The people who uh, have colonized Palestine have no, quote, mother country. They are collected from all over the world. They have to be reinvented as a genuine people, which they were not. And this makes it unique. When you look at all the settler colonialisms in history, Australia, Canada, the United States itself, these are examples of a people who have a clear origin and source going over to somewhere else, dispossessing the local population and taking their place. But the people who arrived in all those examples are a composite people. They are an already a nation with a mother country. That is not the case in Israel-Palestine. And it's been really the curse of this dreadful conflict and makes it so difficult to solve. People need to bear that in mind when they look at the one-state idea, need to understand it's a way of trying to make up for this dreadful mess that was visited on Palestine in 1948. Well, I think that's a really good place to leave it. Um, Thank you very much, Garda Kami, for your time. It's been a real privilege to talk to you today, and I hope our listeners get something from this. That was Garda Kami on Radicals in Conversation. Her book, One State, The Only Democratic Future for Palestine, Israel, is available now from Pluto Press, along with a number of other important books on the subject. You can find out more at plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading. We'll be back in the new year with our next episode of Radicals and Conversation. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>